Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the National Democratic Institute's Changing the Face of Politics podcast series. In these candid conversations recorded from home, Politically active women from around the globe interview each other about the male-dominated world of politics. They're the best examples of why we need to move faster to reach political parity between men and women before the middle of the next century and change the face of politics. In this special episode to celebrate International Women's Day, Julia Gillard, former Prime Minister of Australia, interviews Madeleine K. Albright, former U.S. Secretary of State and Chairman of NDI's board, about Secretary Albright's decades-long experience as a leading woman in politics and diplomacy. Hello, welcome to this episode of the Changing Face of Politics podcast series. My name is Julia Gillard and I'm the former Prime Minister of Australia and Chair of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. My guest is Secretary Madeleine Albright, former United States Secretary of State and Chairman of the National Democratic Institute Board of Directors. I'm certainly looking forward to this conversation because when I was starting out my political career in Australia, Madeline, you were an inspiration to me and I learned so much watching you stride the world stage. Well, I'm delighted to be able to do this with you, Julia, because you have been uh, a truly remarkable political leader and somebody who is now continues to make a difference in terms of the activities you've undertaken helping women and educating them in so many different ways. So I'm looking forward to our conversation. That's terrific. Well, I'm going to start by taking you back. Uh, last year, we celebrated the 25th anniversary of the Beijing Conference and Platform for Action, at which Hillary Clinton famously said, women's rights are human rights. And you said, it's time to turn bold talk into concrete action. Since you spoke those words, what do you think has changed for women in political leadership and in decision-making? And what stubbornly stayed the same? Well, I do think that things have changed and um, we late have proven that by having now a woman vice president in the United States. Um, you have been in the leadership role of your country, but it hasn't been that easy for Americans to put a woman in charge. Uh, but I do think that the thing that has come as a result of that 25th anniversary is there is a great deal more consciousness about the importance of integrating women into um, not just a daily life and uh, various things that have to happen, but making and regarding women as political players. Uh, and I think that that has changed. Um, it is not like saying, you know, what are you doing here? I think there are things, however, it is an unfinished job, frankly, uh, because 
um, I think people know this, but I will repeat it. In every country, women are usually even more than half the population. Um, and I think it is a completely wasted resource not to have women more involved um, in whether it's the government or the private sector or teaching or uh, really being active members of our societies. And it's happening, but not to the extent I think that the pledges that people made in Beijing in terms of national programs to bring more women into public life. So there's still an awful lot of work to do. In that same speech all those years ago, you also said, let us be clear, freedom to participate in the political process of our countries is the inalienable right of every woman and man. Deny that right and you deny everything. How did gender equality and democracy work together in your mind? I mean, when we look around the world, uh, it's not just democracies that are trying to address gender equality, but do the two go hand in hand? I happen to think they do, uh, because uh, if women are really encouraged to run for office uh, and play a part in the political system, um, women do very well. Uh, and it's not just a matter of an authoritarian government uh, selecting a woman, uh, but I do think that within democracy, there is the chance to show what can be done to get support of others um, and to be a problem solver. So for me, they do go hand in hand, but there need to be more women uh, in that process. And one of the things I'm very proud of that NDI does is to really work in various countries uh, supporting women to run for office, and then working also uh, with uh, a group worth the cost of at the United Nations, where it's very clear that um, it's not easy for women to run for office, um, that there are threats against women and threats against their families. And so uh, why would they choose to run? So that there are a variety of issues that continue to be dealt with that uh, are part of showing that democracy and women definitely go together. You referred earlier to Vice President Harris, and it's just been terrific to see her sworn in and commence work. What impact do you think seeing someone like Vice President Harris has for young girls, especially those of colour? What impact does role modelling have? Well, I do think role modelling does have a lot to do because... There are a lot of little girls and older girls and women who have been kind of uh, paralyzed by the fact uh, that they are uh, viewed by their contemporaries or older various groups that they can't do anything, uh, that they can watch, but they can't really do things. And I think that having a role model, such as our new vice president, um, in terms of uh, not just her background um, as somebody who came, who's the daughter of uh, people that traveled to the United States, that she is uh, a, you know, part Indian, part black, that she also had an incredible career before um, as the district attorney um, in San Francisco and then attorney general and is a political figure um, in addition to her background and uh, the fact that we haven't had a woman um, in high level. I have to tell you, 
Uh, I actually, at a certain 1984, uh, worked on behalf of Geraldine Ferraro. It was the first time that a woman was put on the national ticket uh, with then uh, Vice President Mondale running for president and vice president. And the thing that I found, Julia, is that um, women, we're very hard on each other. Um, and while we can blame men for things, um, I think that we are hard about on each other. And the most famous thing I ever said was there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. Um, it was so famous, it ended up on a Starbucks cup. And partially we are very judgmental about each other. Uh, if uh, uh, I know I was uh, getting my PhD and working uh, when I had twins. And so other women would come to me and say, why are you in the library when you should be with your children? Or when I was with Geraldine Ferraro, we'd be traveling somewhere and a woman would come up to me and say, well, how can she talk to a Russian? I can't talk to a Russian. Well, nobody was asking that woman to do that. But um, some people that kind of feel inadequate press that inadequacy on other women. So one can blame men for everything, but I do think that we also bear some responsibility in not being supportive enough of each other in uh, seeking to do more than um, is evident at the time. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're so passionate about this cause of gender equality. Can you explain what motivated you? Where did it all start? Why did you become politically involved? Was there a connection to politics in your family or does it come from something else? Well, I have a complicated background. My father was a Czechoslovak diplomat. I was born in Czechoslovakia. Uh, my parents escaped and we spent World War II in England. Then after the war, we uh, went back to Czechoslovakia and my father was made the Czechoslovak ambassador to Yugoslavia. And uh, you know, the little girl in the national costume that gives flowers at the airport, that's what I did for a living. Um, and so, then we came to the United States because the communists had taken over Czechoslovakia. Uh, and my background was really foreign policy all the time. That's all we ever talked about. Um, I loved politics because um, I, uh, we were living in Denver, Colorado and it was an interesting place. And there were people that talked an awful lot about uh, party politics and then I just kind of got into it. The issue though was when I was in college, it was a women's college, Wellesley, where you've been uh, to visit. And, but at that time it was primarily Republican and there was a small group of Democrats there, I was among them. And we went into Boston 
uh, to raise money. Uh, and uh, that was the beginning of my political career, which was kind of weird because we were raising dollars for Democrats and some crusty old man walked by me and said, five bucks for you, baby, but not one dollar for the Democrats. <laughs> so I thought, well, that is not a great entree into politics. But I, I did manage because of the various things that I was able to do is to mix politics with foreign policy. Um, and that was kind of my specialty is to understand the role of politics and foreign policy together and domestic and foreign policy going together. And I love the combination and it's something that I do to this day. So I do encourage women to become involved in politics. And I have only one real regret in life is that I never ran for office uh, because I think that that is a, uh, a kind of solidarity and uh, that uh, when people vote for you rather than when you've been appointed. But um, I really do believe that women can add a lot in terms of our political systems and we need to do it ourselves and then support those that want to be a part of the, their political systems. And this journey took you to the highest levels in the United States to becoming Secretary of State and the first woman to do that job. Can you talk to us about um, how the challenges were being the first woman? Were people sceptical that a woman could do a tough job like Secretary of State, stand up in the world for the United States? Well, I have to tell you how it all started because it really um, explains some of the issues that you're asking about. So I was um, ambassador to the United Nations. There had been a woman there before, Jean Kirkpatrick as ambassador. So that wasn't that novel, but I was a cabinet member. And so um, I would be on TV and I became somebody that had a public face. What happened was that Warren Christopher, who was secretary of state, um, in the first Clinton term had made very clear that he uh, would not stay for a second term. So what happened was what I call the period of great mentioning. Um, <laughs> and because I had been out there, my name was among those being mentioned. And then somebody said, well, a woman can't be secretary of state because Arab leaders won't deal with a woman. So then what happened was the Arab ambassadors at the UN got together and they said, we've had no problems dealing with Ambassador Albright. We wouldn't have any problems dealing with Secretary Albright. So that went away. But then somebody at the White House, and I never want to know who, said, yes, Madeline's on the list, but she's second tier. So I was absolutely sure nothing would happen. Uh, and, um, and I didn't want to campaign for the job. And, um, and I, I really think it wasn't going to happen. So what then did happen uh, in December uh, 4th and 5th of uh, uh, 1996, I get a phone call from uh, Erskine Bowles, who was chief of staff. And he said, if the president of the United States were to call you tomorrow, would you take the call? Uh, uh, if the president of the United States were to ask you to be secretary of state, would you say yes? No. He said, well, go home. The president will call you in the morning. And it took him a while to call me and I thought he's changed his mind, but he did call and asked me to be Secretary of State. So I loved it, but this is the next part uh, in terms of the period of great mentioning. One of the things that happened was that First Lady Hillary Clinton and the President and I sometimes traveled together. Um, and we were abroad 
and uh, I would introduce her, she would introduce him, and we were uh, in, in Central America somewhere. And so President Clinton actually said that um, at that period of great mentioning that Hillary would come to him and say, why wouldn't you name Madeline? Uh, she is most in tune with your views and expresses them better than anybody else. And besides, it would make your mother happy. So that is how it happened. Uh, but then Hillary and I really, we were friends even before that, but really became a great tag team and worked together. And I think that, Julia, is one of the parts is you need somebody, you can't be there as the only woman. And I think it is very important to get more women at the table. And so when I became secretary, uh, I did get uh, more, we named women ambassadors. I had a number of my direct uh, people that I worked with, women. And so I do think that's a part, you don't wanna be the only woman at the table. It's a wonderful example of the solidarity that you, you talk about when you use the phrase special place in hell for women who don't support women. It's a wonderful example of that happening. Um, many women who contemplate putting themselves forward for leadership, whether it's in politics or in any other walk of life, would have a set of questions going round in their head. You know, could I do it? Could I stand up to the scrutiny? You know, there would be some pluses, but what are the minuses? And many would be asking themselves, how can I balance this with family life, with being a mother? Can you describe how you brought all of that together? What surprised you about being in public life, the pluses, the minuses, and how on earth did you balance it all with bringing up your three girls basically on your own? I'm always asked the life balance question. There's no way, frankly. I mean, uh, but one of the really good examples you had asked about the uh, 25th anniversary of the Beijing Women's Conference. So talk about life balance. My youngest daughter uh, was getting married and I had to leave her reception in order to go and meet Hillary to go to Beijing. So, uh, you know, but uh, in my case, what happened was that my children were all older. Um, and so I didn't, they began to take care of me rather than me, um, them worrying about what I was doing. But I do think that one of the things that is really hard because I'm often asked some version of this question is that there is no one pattern uh, that people, you have to lay out what works for you. And that is why I mentioned earlier that I don't like it when women are judgmental about each other. Um, we, be, we should be supportive, but there isn't just one step. And in my case, what happened was, I won't tell the whole story because it takes too long, but but basically I was gonna be somebody else. I thought initially that I'd be a journalist um, and I worked on my college paper and I um, then married a journalist and we uh, moved to Chicago where he already had a job and we're having dinner with his managing editor. And he looked at me and he said, so what are you gonna do, honey? And I said, I'm gonna be a reporter. And he said, I don't think so. Uh, you're." you're you can't work on the same paper as your husband because of labor regulations. And even though at that time there were three other papers in Chicago and he said, and you wouldn't want to compete with your husband. So go find something else to do. Uh, and I obeyed and did, and I found another life. I started, I worked at Encyclopedia Britannica and then I started graduate school. Um, and one thing led to another, but the thing, the only thing that I think fits into a formula 
is that you should be open to ideas. You also should not think that something is beneath you. And if you have been asked to do something and you say you'll do it, do it and finish and be dependable. Um, I think those are important. And then my other uh, piece of my uh, set of what I believe in, and this has to do with the only woman at the table. If you, and I think probably you have had that experience is you're the only woman and you think to yourself, I'm gonna say something. And then you think, well, it's gonna sound stupid so you don't say it. And then some man says it and everybody thinks it's brilliant and you're really mad at yourself. So I made up that first of all, a one rule that there needed to be more than one woman, but that women need to learn to interrupt. Because um, if you raise your hand, by the time they call on you, it's not germane. And if you're going to interrupt, you have to know what you're talking about uh, and you have to say it with uh, dedication and understanding. And so uh, I do think that we need to be good to each other, but we also need to be clear about the fact that we have the stature, that we have the capability and, and to be uh, really uh, not shy about who you are. The truth of the matter though is that there is no room for mediocre women. There's no question. We do have to work harder. And I think that it's very important to realize that. So there's still the differential burden of proving that we should have a seat at the table. Hopefully one of these days uh, we'll get to the, the genuine equality where that's no longer there. But you think that's still part of the system now? I think it is. I think less and less so. But I mean, the fact that it has taken the United States so many years to have a, a woman as vice president, when other countries have had women in leadership positions, um, IEU, uh, but I really do think that we still have a long ways to go. us about the resilience that's needed. I think a lot of women contemplating public life would say to themselves that they couldn't take the attacks that come and some of them are the sort of cheap shots about appearance, some of them are the very profound challenges about whether you're getting big judgment calls right or wrong. How did you face your way through all of that? Well, let me say, there's no way to be in public life and not get criticized for something. Um, it's unfortunate when uh, it's, uh, you've done something wrong and you apologize, but there are many times when things have been misunderstood and you haven't done anything wrong. And so I think that that, that makes it hard. But I think that the bottom line is that one does have to have a certain level of confidence and then I must say, I'm not, I haven't been too great in terms of taking criticism. And I now look at pictures of myself from when I was in public life. And uh, I used to say, the reason I can take criticism is that I've grown a thicker skin. It clearly was true that I had a thicker skin. By the way, I also say that as a diplomat, I was eating for my country. So that has <laughs> to do with it. And the delights, if you were trying to persuade a young woman this life could be for you, what would you say to her? First of all, I do think that people do want to have their qualities appreciated and to try to find a job that they really like, that they get a sense of accomplishment in. That is a very important part. I think everybody, women, 
would need to know that there are bad days and that you will get through them uh, and that uh, not everybody is going to be helpful to you. But it is usually the substantive part of what you do is so challenging and interesting that you think, okay, this is really worth it. Um, I certainly felt that way. I didn't regret any time doing what I was doing. Um, and my daughters, um, all of whom are uh, very busy uh, and doing things that they like. Uh, I have twin daughters, you know. Uh, one of them you know very well, my daughter, Alice, who has been working with you on Global Partnership for Education. And then her, her twin sister is a, is a circuit court judge. And my youngest daughter um, is a head of an organization that helps children also, she's a lawyer. So we talk about this a lot and I always ask them if I was a terrible mother and they said, not at all, you know, but I really do think there are sacrifices, there's no question, but there is something uh, really fulfilling in being able to make a difference um, and to be challenged every day and to learn from what you are doing. And, and I do think the following thing, I don't know if you'd agree, Julia, but I think that men and women do think differently and that we have, this is a generalization, our talent is that we can multitask, uh, which means that we have peripheral vision. We can kind of see what is going on. Um, we also, the tendency of women um, is to help others. I think there's no question then uh, not to set their children against each other. Um, I think men, again, this is a generalization, think, uh, can think longer about one subject than women. I think that we like to uh, uh, really have use that peripheral vision. Uh, and, and I think actually, I'm often asked, would the world be better if it were totally run by women? And I say, well, if you think that you've forgotten high school, but I do think that it's important for us to work together and to, um, to really work with each other's talents. But I will repeat that there is no room for mediocre women. There's just no question. And there is some room for mediocre men. I'm gonna go back on something because I didn't fully want my, you know, the Arabs couldn't deal with me. So what happened was I become secretary of state um, and uh, I did arrive um, in for the Gulf Cooperation Council in Kuwait. And um, so I did have a very large plane that said the United States of America. And we're having the meeting with a number of foreign ministers from the Gulf countries. Um, and they were very nice. And I said, you've very, been very kind. Perhaps you've noticed that I'm not dressed the way my predecessors were. And next time we'll talk about women's rights. And we did, uh, because they all had daughters. I think that what I felt that uh, I needed to say what I thought. Um, and I had a trick sometimes when um, the conversations in various countries went too long. I would say, I have come a long way, so I must be frank. Um, and so I stood my ground when I needed to and um, tried to be charming when I, when I wanted to be and could be. So um, I... It, you know, but the part that was irritating, you asked about this, you know, was I wearing the right clothes or why did my hair look the way it did? And I think every woman has had that issue. Absolutely. And frustrating it is when you're trying to talk about substantive yeah. things. 
in today's world, uh, people wake up every morning and probably the first thing they do is check the new cases of the virus in their country, maybe the death rates. We've been through a pretty tough time and we're still going through it. So can you talk to us about what in today's world makes you optimistic? Looking ahead, can you give us a sense of where we could be going to next? Well, first of all, I'm going to put these two questions together because the countries where there has been better control over the virus just happen to be run by women. New Zealand, Taiwan, Finland, Germany, Denmark, Norway, and Iceland. Um, and uh, I'm often asked why, and I think partially because it, of that caring and multitasking um, but I think uh, I am often asked um, whether I'm an optimist or a pessimist. I'm an optimist who worries a lot. Um, and so I, I am optimistic in terms of, um, I was recently at a dinner and I was asked to describe myself in six words. And I said, worried optimist, problem solver, grateful American. And they go together uh, because I do think that uh, there are problems out there, but in terms of cooperation, ultimately we figure them out. And, and, and I think that uh, there is movement in terms of trying to deal with the virus and the fact that um, President Biden has made it a central aspect of what he wants to do, that we now are much more aware of the fact that the virus knows no borders, that there has to be international cooperation on it. Um, that it is also something that I'm a great believer in our public-private partnerships where the government partners with the private sector. The government is not going to uh, manufacture the vaccines. And so uh, cooperation and problem solving is a very important part of this. And I am optimistic about the fact that uh, we now in the United States with a new president and vice president are looking at how to return to partnership in the world and work with others and understand that there are certain issues that cannot be solved by one country alone. Um, and that that kind of partnership um, is the only way to begin to deal with what are serious problems. I think you would agree, we're living in a new era. There's no question. Technology has changed a great deal. Um, the importance of understanding the, uh, the problems that are out there, viruses and global warming, but also understanding the importance of education, um, of really using the um, collection of people in one's society, not deciding that one half the women can't do the job, you need to use with everybody. And so I think we need to keep talking about um, what can be done and what we can do together. Worried optimist and problem solver, I like that. And I like the optimistic vision for the future too. Thank you for sharing it. Uh, that has been a delightful conversation. What a real pleasure. Uh, thank you for talking with me today. I've loved talking with you and it's wonderful to be able to exchange views and especially given all the wonderful things that you've done and what you're doing now in terms of working with women. It's an honor, Julia. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of the Changing the Face of Politics podcast. To learn more about the series and NDI's initiative, 
please go to NDI's website at ndi.org. You can also listen to this episode on a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard through the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. <laughs>